So we've been walking through the book of Acts for several weeks now. We're going to be in it for several more weeks. Uh, but if you, if you recall, the, um, the, the subtitle of this sermon is The Church on Mission. The Church on Mission. And so today, before we dig into this text, I just want to ask you a question. It's a very simple question. If we believe that the book of Acts is all about the church being on mission, and if we believe that the church is not a place but a people a people who are redeemed by the grace of God who come together and we are all called to be on mission for Christ of the church we as a group and as individuals are called to be on mission the question I have to ask you is what does that actually look like what does that look like in your life like all right so we we finish up today we go eat some lunch and and then you wake up tomorrow morning you're on with your day as normal what does that actually look like if you're called by God if God's a commander-in-chief and he says you and he calls your name out and he says you are to be on mission for me what does that look like well we could probably say a lot of different things we could sum it up in one word imitation imitation you see, humans are people of imitation. And everything about our mission, if we are to imitate, if we would imitate Christ, the imitation of Christ actually uh, sets us in motion to carry out the mission with our lives and we as a people. I remember growing up in the 80s and I used to love this Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan. It was called, I Want to Be Like Mike. Anybody remember that? I want to be like Mike. I, that was my favorite commercial. I'd be, you know, I was sitting there on, my, uh, on our golden shag carpet watching our wood frame TV that sat on the ground that weighed, you know, five tons. And, uh, and if, that, if that came on, then immediately I, I would start singing it in my head and then I would just, you know, uh, go, out in the, go out in the driveway and shoot some hoops and, and sing it to myself. And after a couple layups and bricks, I'd, I'd probably, th- you know, put it up after that and go on to the next thing. But I really, at, at a certain time in my life, I really wanted to be like Michael Jordan. That's what I, I and so I'd sing that song. And, and really, if Coach would have put me in, I would have been like him. Uh, that was the only thing lacking uh, other than size, ability, and talent, and everything else was, uh, you know, uh, and speed and, you know, the willingness and everything. But otherwise, I would have been just like Michael Jordan. But here's what's interesting about that song. At the heart of that song is really at the heart of every person under the sun. And it's that universal, universally speaking, everybody everywhere, we all have an impulse to imitate someone that we look up to or at least a certain aspect about their lives you know as as people as humans we are people of imitation you know why that's so i mean we have to ask the question why is that if if it's so universal to all mankind why are we like that why are we people of imitation why do we desire why do we have a natural impulse uh to to imitate i mean i see this in my children like if i'm going to work out in the yard uh, George and Jake, my two boys, they, they want to be like their daddy so much that I, if I put on a certain shirt to go out work in the yard, they'll go try to find a shirt that, that's like that one so that they can come out and, uh, and, and work in the yard just, just like me. Uh, and, and, and so we see this with children. We see it just universally. So why? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. And it's because we're made in the Im- image of God. It's because we're made in the image of God. You see, the word image... Uh, finds its roots in a, the Latin word imitari, which, is, uh, which means to copy 
or to reflect or to imitate. So the fact that it's a natural impulse for all of us to, to want to imitate someone or something is a reminder that we're made in the image of God. The reason that impulse is there is because we're made in the image of God. And of course, we look at the storyline of the scripture and Adam and Eve, when they're first created, they do it perfectly. They, they, they imitate God perfectly. But then in their sin, when sin entered the world, they're broken. They're like shattered mirrors. It, it gives us a distorted view of what God is like. So they still uh, image him. They still imitate him, but not perfectly and then, in, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, he did so not only to purchase our redemption, but to purchase our capability that we could actually imitate him. So it's kind of like with me with Michael Jordan. Uh, I, I find out now, if you've watched The Last Dance, anybody watched The Last Dance? You've probably seen um, just how driven Michael Jordan was. And it's very apparent to me now, I didn't really want to be like Mike. I didn't have that kind of drive. I didn't want to do what it, what, what, what it takes. And, uh, you know, and so really I didn't have the ability to be like Michael Jordan and I didn't even have the desire. And that's the same way we are in our broken state naturally. We don't have the ability to, to really imitate God, to really imitate Jesus, nor do we have the desire. But, when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to purchase not only our redemption, forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life, but he also went to purchase our capability, the desire to want to be like Jesus and the ability to actually be like Jesus. And so that's why Ephesians 5, 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That imperative is there because we are actually able to imitate God. Now, that's a stout command, but we are able to do it. And one of the ways that we do this, and I want you to get this, one of the ways that we do this is by imitating other Christians. So the way, one of the ways that we imitate God is by imitating other Christians. That's why 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, it's good to look at someone following hard after Jesus and to take note of what that looks like and actually, uh, and actually do like that. That's one of the great things about the church is that we give, uh, uh, you know, we, we give our young boys and girls uh, people to look up to. It's not perfect, but it's, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm following hard after Jesus. I'm living in the shadow of the cross. I know what it is to fail. And when I fail, I don't just kind of beat myself up all the time or, or try to do a certain amount of good things to cover up my past failure. But rather, I just look to Christ and his finished work on the cross. And I live a lifestyle of repentance. That's the way that we are to live out. And we are to imitate, we are to, uh, we are to imitate each other in that way those who are following hard after Christ. And so in our text today, we have a, this is a fascinating text and there's so many layers. Uh, it's a huge chunk of text. I'm not gonna be able to unpack everything. But one thing we see is this guy named Stephen. And of course, we were introduced to him last week. He's one of the first deacons. It says that he was a man filled with wisdom and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that he is the first Christian martyr. So those who are interested in Bible trivia, I, I, I just know I hooked you up with that one. Don't you should, nobody should ever, uh, if you get qu asked the question, who's the first Christian martyr? You should say, who is it? Stephen, there you go. Uh, good, good job, First Baptist. And so what's interesting about this is that it's clear as we walk through this 
Stephen is a man who imitates Christ well. In fact, if you're familiar with the four Gospels and you, and you see kind of the mannerisms and the way that Jesus spoke to his opponents and the way that he stood firm and the way that he also spoke with grace and truth, when you, when you, when you, if you're well-versed in the Gospels and then you, if you were to read this passage and it didn't give you a name, you would think this was Jesus in the way that he's talking to these guys and the way that he's interacting. But it's Stephen and he imitates him well. And so I, I do believe there are some lessons we can learn about imitating Jesus as we look at Stephen and really as we walk through this we're going to see five things five things about the imitation of Christ and what that involves power wisdom endurance theology and suffering all right so those are the five things so first of all we are to imitate Christ's power his power Uh, if we're going to do anything for the kingdom of Christ we must have power to do it it takes power and that's something you and I just can't stir up on our own. And just as Jesus was filled with the Spirit and walked in the Spirit and he had power to do great things, so Stephen does this and you and I can do this. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And we've talked about several times that this is a unique time in redemptive history in the book of Acts. And, and so uh, all of these wonders and signs, they are not, uh, they are not necessarily uh, normative. Um, but what we do see, what, we, what, what, what is normative is that as God's people, we are all called to carry out the mission of Christ with power, with authority. And remember, Stephen didn't stir this power up. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, what are you filled with? Here's a principle we must always remember. You will be controlled by whatever you're filled with. You will be controlled by whatever you're filled with. So if you fill your, your mind, your heart, your meditation, all those kind of things with, uh, with greed, you're just wanting, no matter what socioeconomic level, if you're always wanting more, always wanting, always, and, and those kind of things, you're, you, that's going to control you. If it's with anger or bitterness, that's going to control you. If it's with jealousy, that's going to control you. If it's with lust, that's going to control you. But if it's with the Holy Spirit, with the things of God, and remember the Holy Spirit always works in tandem with the Word of God, so so how does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So so, uh, the question is, are you asking for God to fill you with his spirit? Or do you have a posture of dependence on him? Uh, are you dialing into God's word? Are you studying it? Are you memorizing it? Are you meditating on it? Whatever fills you will control you. So what are you filling your life with? Number two, imitate Christ's wisdom. Imitate Christ's wisdom. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, just a little background. The the synagogue of the freedmen were Greek-speaking former slaves. They're now free. But they weren't the only ones there. And, uh, and so they, uh, there was a group of people that gathered together in this area. And, uh, and you've, got, you've got all these places, their background, where they're from, named. One place is very interesting. It's Cilicia. 
That is the home place of Paul, who right now we're about to be introduced to him. You know, Paul is an apostle. He, he wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. He was the seminal missionary that took the gospel to the Gentiles. He did amazing things for the kingdom of Christ, and yet what we're about to encounter is in his former life, before he came to know Jesus, he actually not only was named Saul, but he hated Christians. He hated the church. He hated the movement of the gospel. And it was a movement. He hated it. And uh, now, here's what we know about Saul. He was, scholars seem, seem to think that he was the ringleader in all of this because later on we see that, that <clears throat> Stephen is stoned. He's killed. And, they, and it says they laid their coats at, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And, uh, and when you lay your coats at, at the feet of someone, that, that signifies that they have authority over this. So it says earlier on in Acts that they laid their money at the feet of, a, of the apostles. That, mean, that means they handed it over to the apostles. The apostles had authority over it. The church had authority over it. And so it seems to be that, God, that, that Saul was overseeing this. He had authority. He, had a, he was given approval to all of this. It actually says that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So... <clears throat> Here's what we know about Saul. He's probably the ringleader in all this dialogue and discussion. He hates Christians and he's brilliant. He is brilliant. In fact, Peter at one time says, hey, listen, I know Paul's hard to understand. I mean, he's very heady. He's, he's a brilliant theologian, very deep in his writings. I know that some of his writings are very hard to understand. So what's amazing about this is this verse 10 right here says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So they had brilliant Saul and still couldn't hang with how brilliant this guy named Stephen was in terms of his wisdom. But here's what I want you to see. And this is very practical for us. It's not like Stephen was just kind of for, for years just sitting around uh, binge watching Netflix. And then all of a sudden he got into this predicament and then he just started speaking wisdom. It was a pattern in his life. And, these, and the church recognized it even in Acts, the, the beginning of Acts 6 when they chose him of, uh, to be deacon. It was something that was a pattern in his life. He studied the scriptures well. He sought out wisdom. You know, Proverbs says, seek wisdom. Above all else, get wisdom. Don't go after riches and rubies and jewels and all those kind of things. Don't seek after those with, with just this ferocious desire. Seek after wisdom. Let me ask you, what are you seeking after? Do you really seek after wisdom? Is wisdom shown in the way you're handling yourself on social media? Is wisdom shown in the way that you're receiving and even talking about some of the things that's happening in our country right now? Is it godly wisdom? Is it biblically gospel-centered, biblically informed wisdom? So, they couldn't hang with him. They decided to go a different route like many politicians today. If you can't beat them, we'll try to, try to discredit them by making up lies. And that's what they did. And so we see the third piece of his imitation of Christ is endurance power wisdom and endurance they make up lies about him false accusations and he endures we'll look at this chapter 6 verse 11 and following 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him, uh, we, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him uh, before the council. And I'm sorry, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Luke is the one writing this and he, 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 it seems to be that he's helping you recall how Moses came off of Mount Sinai after the Ten Commandments. He had to veil his face because it was glowing and how Jesus came after the, off of the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. It was, he was glowing. And so his face shined like a face of an angel. Now, um, what just happened? What happened is they were making false accusations about him to try to discredit him. And how he responds shows us that he, he imitates Christ well. Because how does he respond? He responds with grace and with mercy and with love. In, in fact, First Peter says that when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he, he turned the other cheek. And that's what we're to do in the sense that we, we are to love justice and do justice, but, but on an individual uh, uh, basis, we are not to go and try to bring about true repu uh, retribution and, and justice. We leave that ultimately to God and the institutions that he has ordained. But he's about to give them a Bible lesson, and when he does, he doesn't just take the mud that they threw on him and, and throw and, and say, well, you know what, if you're going to play this game, you got, it's got to go two ways, and what, what we see often with, with politics and everything else. Instead, he just responds like Jesus does. In fact, look at chapter 7, verse 60. It's, this is after you, when he was dying, after he'd been stoned. It says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? It's a lot like Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He imitates Christ all the way to the end. He perseveres all the way to the end. Now, I often get the question, how do we know that we'll stand the test if we're ever tested like that? How do we know? Two words, let me tell you. Future grace. Your ability and my ability to persevere to the end is not based on, <laughs> it's not based on our desire. It's not based on our uh, moral capability. try not to spit too much on it <laughs> if I get really into it I may want to I want to get some Germax on this all right can we yeah. all right. there we go all right that's that's what you call a uh, a pump fake and uh or maybe an audible there you go so we just call it an audible um but uh but but the, the only uh, the only way we're going to persevere to the end is based on the grace of God and that's you know, we, we see past grace through the work of Christ. We see present grace through the work of the Holy Spirit and the future grace through we know that God will see us to the end. If we don't have that to rely on, 
we're hopeless. We don't have a living hope. We don't have hope. And so it's future grace. Number four, number four, imitate Christ's theology. Imitate Christ's theology. If you want to imitate Christ, you must have good theology. I've heard people often say, well, I'm no theologian. Let me just say, wrong. Everybody everywhere under the sun is a theologian. Think about the way that word means. Ology is a study of. Theos is the Greek word for God. So, so it's the study of God. So everybody does theology at some point. Everybody does theology. Even the, even the atheist who makes an absolute claim that there is no God is caught up in that dis- discipline, right? Like he's, he's saying uh, there is no God. Well, he's making a truth claim about God. So if you make any kind of truth claim about God, then you're caught up in theology. If you teach your children or grandchildren, God is like this or he's not like this or you ought to live like, those are all theological things. The question is, is it well thought out theology? Or is it just kind of haphazard based on what you, what you assume about God, what you heard growing up, and maybe what you learned from touched by an angel? The question is, is it well thought out and biblical? And so he, he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts right here. And we don't have time to go through all this. It deserves a, a separate sermon by itself. But he basically retells Israel's history. And he starts with Abraham, and he goes through, uh, through Abraham. He goes to the building of the temple, and it climaxes with the work of Christ. And, uh, and now remember, his, his, the accusation was, you are mishandling or misteaching the temp- two things, the temple and the law. In fact, look back at verse 13. It says, and they set up false, false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, and there's a temple, and the law. So let's, let's think through those things. First of all, the law. Uh, this, you know, Ten, Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, the, uh, Moses uh, kind of laid this out. Now, what he, what he says, look at verse 37. He says something very interesting. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so what Stephen is saying right here is that Moses, I'm not mishandling Moses, I'm just pointing to what Moses was ultimately pointing to. I mean, Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. Like, what does that mean, like me? Well, in just two verses before, in verse 35, I don't have it up here for you, but he says two things about Moses. He says Moses is, uh, is the redeemer, and he's the ruler of God's people. He was used by God to be the ruler and redeemer, it says in verse 35. Now, how did, was he a ruler and redeemer? How did he do that? Because Moses wasn't perfect. Well, it's that he led God's people out of, I mean, through the, exodus, the Passover exodus, parting of the Red Sea, and then into uh, towards the Promised Land. He led God's people out of bondage and slavery to Egypt into the great adventure of making the name of God known. And what Jesus does with us in a fuller, um, a better way, he leads us out of bondage and slavery to sin and death, the great enemies, not Egypt, but, but the sin and death. And he gives us a seminal task. He, 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 he thrusts us into the great adventure of making the name of God known. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. This is what he does with, with us. And so we can say it like this. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He not only is 
Redeemer, he is ruler. He gave, Moses gave the law, Jesus kept the law on our behalf. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so what God demands, God provides, and he does so through Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate hope. And then the temple, what is the temple anyway? You know what the temple is? The temple is the supreme manifestation of the presence of God. And one of the points that he makes, again, it deserves a study in itself, but one of the points that he makes is he points to Abraham and then Joseph and then Moses and the monarchy with David and then Solomon. And then Solomon is the, finally the one who built the temple. But he said, look, throughout all of Israel's history, God was with them. He dwelled with them even before the temple. So he's making the point that the temple is great, but the temple is not great in and of itself, it's great because it pointed to, the, to, to, to a greater reality, namely the dwelling place of God being with us, with us. You see, sin is what kept us from God. And, and ultimately, Jesus came to die for sin, to take away sin so that we could be reconciled with God. And in so doing, that Jesus could take up his residence, his dwelling place in us. And that's why 1 Corinthians 6 says that the temple, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So we're the temple now. We are the temple, not brick and mortar. That's why we say like, look, this building is great and this building is a blessing. It's great and it's holy only to the degree that we gather here as the people of God. But then we're gonna scatter and the temple is gonna be everywhere. The dwelling place of God is gonna be in all these different places that we go. So watch where you go. But one day, and this is just a beautiful, uh, when, this, when this kingdom comes to consummation, one day, it says in Revelation 21, Jesus comes back, he makes all things new. There's this profound statement. It says, as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, so heaven, the place where God is, comes and meets earth, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so ultimately, and finally, the earth, the universe is God's temple. And that's why he quotes uh, an Old Testament, uh, an Isaiah. He quotes an Old Testament passage that speaks about uh, God saying, you, really, you, really going, you think you can make a dwelling place that can, can contain me with human hands? No. That's what Stephen quotes. And so that's the point he's making, is that the entire cosmos will be God's dwelling place. And so in so doing, here's what, he, here's what he does. He turns a table on him. He says, oh, you accuse me of speaking against the temple and the law? Well, guess what? You're the ones who are mishandling the teaching of the temple and the law. You don't understand what they're actually speaking towards or, spe or pointing to. In, in fact, look at uh, verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people. Apparently, he had not read how to win friends and influence people. You call people stiff-necked, usually it doesn't fare too well with you. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but boy, this is so interesting. Go back, and if you're studying this, look at the contrast over and over when he names Abraham and, 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 and uh, Joseph and Moses, and he's, and he's talking about our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, and now he says your fathers when he starts talking about the ones who persecuted the prophets. He said, as your fathers did, so do you. Look at this, a scathing indictment. Verse 52, which of the, the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You think you've kept the law? You think you've handled the law rightly? The very one the law pointed to, the very one who was to fulfill the law, the very one that the prophet spoke about, you have lied about, you betrayed him, which is at the heart of lying, which is one of the ten big ones, right? And you murdered him. You, you hadn't kept the law. Are you kidding me? Now, what's interesting is when you contrast how Peter spoke at Pentecost and, and, and then after that and how Stephen speaks, it's very similar. He was very direct, but the response was different. To them, to the at Pentecost and after that, Peter said, you killed him. You, I mean, he says it over and over. You did this. And it says they were cut with a core cut to the core with conviction and they cried out what must we do to be saved but not right here oh no right here they're mad they're cut to the core but it's because they're infuriated and what we see is basically they want to kill him but you know that's the they he wasn't just trying to nail them or trying to roast them he's speaking with truth and grace And that's what the gospel does. When we speak the gospel, to some it's the smell of life, to some it's the smell of death, and there's going to be different reactions. Now, truth and grace is the Christian formula. That's what Jesus did. And let me just tell you, if you speak with truth and with grace, the world will most hate you if you hold both. Now, they're not going to mess with you if you just hold one without the other. If it's truth without grace, that's, it comes across as uh, self-righteous fundamentalism and it's easy to write you off. If it's just truth without grace, without love, without tenderness, without, without grace. But if it's grace without truth, then it's just sentimentality. It's mushy-gushy. It's, that doesn't mean anything. They, and then the world will be like, oh, well, yeah, they're sweet. Bless their hearts. But when you speak with truth and grace the way that Jesus did, the world will hate you, and you will suffer. And that leads to the fifth and final point, that we are to imitate Christ's suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus made it clear. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If you want to imitate Christ, you must be willing to suffer. Look at this, verse 54 Chapter 7 and following. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city very similar to Jesus, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first time we're introduced to Saul in the book of Acts. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Again, very similar to Jesus. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, 
he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Now, there are a lot of layers here. I'm going to mention two. Imitation, which is kind of the theme of what we see. And then the second is impact. And they go together in that when we imitate Christ, it will have an impact. Now, Luke, he followed, he's close with Peter and with Paul. And in fact, after when Paul starts setting out on some of his missionary journeys, you can tell that he, Luke is, he spends a lot more time with Paul. And if you know the story of Paul, you know it's one of the most fascinating stories of the Bible. It's this guy right here that's named Saul. And he's overseeing this execution. In just a few short verses, we're going to see the same Saul on his way to a place called Damascus to, to persecute some more. Perhaps to even have more people killed. And so Luke is writing this in such a way as to really put him in a bad light. And yet we know what happens on his way to Damascus. Jesus shows up. And it's amazing what happens when Jesus shows up in our lives. Jesus showed up in this failure's life, in this murderer's life. He's a, he's a murderer. And he doesn't merely save him, but he saves him. And then he sets him on this great adventure of making the name of Christ known. And he becomes uh, an instrument in the Redeemer's hands so much so that he writes a huge chunk of the New Testament. God uses him in amazing ways. And yet, I can't help but think, could it be, could it be that Luke is writing this because Luke, in such a way, like in verse 58, it says, and the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then after that, he mentions Saul again. Why did he have to mention Saul? Well, it's because he's foreshadowing, it seems to be, that it, what's about to happen with Saul. Could it be that he spent so much time with, with Saul who changed his name to Paul? And Paul was like, man, that time that I saw Stephen uh, uh, executed, I mean, I knew he knew the Bible. He knew uh, all about Israel's story. He, knew, he was a great theologian. I, I remember seeing him stand up under the greatest of scrutiny and he held true. He stood firm. And then when Jesus came and when Jesus saved me, could it be, could it be that Paul owed a lot of his tenacity and influence by the impact that this man named Stephen had as Stephen imitated Christ. So could it be that Paul imitated Stephen, the very one who said, you imitate me as I imitate Christ? Imitation. It's what we're made for. But it, we're made for a certain kind of imitation, and that is an imitation of Christ. And to the degree that you do that, you will, to that degree, you will suffer to some extent. But this tells us at least two things. Number one, God is sovereign over all our suffering. And he will use your story and he will use my story. He will use your suffering and he will use my suffering to advance his eternal purposes. And then number two, Jesus can save the worst of sinners. 
Maybe you're in here today and you have, you have messed up in a lot of ways. <laughs> Here's a man who messed up in a big way. And it's rec- recorded for, for eternity to see. And yet, God not only saved him, he used him. And he can not only save you, he can also use you. And he will, he's willing. If you turn and you surrender your life to him and you trust in him. Will you imitate Christ? Will you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make much of him with your life? Father, we pray that in all of these areas that we would imitate Christ well, that we would carry ourselves with grace and truth just as Stephen did. So interesting how Stephen spoke very directly to him or to the, to the people, very biting, but he spoke so graciously about them to God. And just as Jesus loved his enemies, so Stephen loved his enemies, and so we too are to love our enemies. So Lord, give us wisdom to do all these things. Give, them, give us power, give us strength, fill us with your spirit so that we may imitate Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.